0: Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 I'm gonna read two verses, two wonderful verses. Luke three, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also Had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, and this very, very good word endures forever. So I know that many of you saw the great early '80s movie *Chariots of Fire*, and uh, the two main characters are based on real people: Eric Little and Harold Abrams. And they're both these world-class track stars and they're competing in the 1924 Olympics. And what's so intriguing, insightful, really stirring about the movie is their distinct motivations for running. And so on the one hand, Eric Little, he's a Christian, he ends up being a missionary to China. Well, he runs because as he says, you remember, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. The fact his worth is tied to what God thinks of him Let him just run with this marked, unbridled, amazing joy and freedom Regardless of the outcome Harold Abrahams, on the other hand, reveals his motives As he applauds another friend for what he saw in his life, his contentment He says about himself Contentment, I'm 24 and I've never known it I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? And the fact that his worth is, is tied to his current success, winning that One race causes him to run with this intense anxiety and fear. And so what's the thing, the voice that tells us we matter, that we're okay? So Tim Keller quotes a counselor who works with high-level executives as saying this, achievement is the alcohol of our time. We're achievement addicts. We keep needing more of it to feel good and feel good about ourselves. Just an early corporate lawyer says this, busyness functions like an addiction. When you stop, you have to face your thoughts. So you cope in life by staying busy. And so in his case, that was what he was doing and he hit the wall. He had to make some changes and Something he learned during that time, I like this phrase, he learned that we are identity reflectors. So think that through, I'm an identity reflector. We're, we're designed to get our identity and our value from something. And the idea is what you pay attention to or what you behold, you become. And work that out. What you behold, what you gaze upon, what you pay attention to, you become. That's how you're designed. So he made it a habit, because he wasn't doing this, to go and look at his scripture in the morning before his phone. An easy habit, but not so easy oftentimes. And so why? He, re- he realized that he was waking up searching for Identity. When he opened that email, first thing in the morning, he was asking, what do I need to do to make someone else happy with me today? How can I justify my existence to the world today? And how about, how about you? Better is to start the day letting God tell us why he's happy with you and how he's already justified your existence. And what about social media you know, what are you seeking when you wake up and immediately you got to check like, whose heart your post or who snapped you? I mean, what, what are you looking for? And being aware of that is important. So again, men and women, boys and girls, we're all crea- created to be identity reflectors. We're going to look to things outside ourselves for significance and to give us value. At the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit, you all know that book? It's probably a favorite of a number of yours. It illustrates this truth wonderfully. And so there's this little imitation velvet stuffed animal, a rabbit, is given to this little boy for Christmas. It's a sweet story. He, he's, he's also given these other toys, and some of them are real up-to-date. They're, they're, they have mechanical parts to them, and they make noises, and they even move. And so for a while, the boy forgets his little velveteen rabbit. So the velveteen rabbit asks the old skin horse, what is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick out handle? And the old skin horse replies to him, real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. See, that that is the truth. God God created us to be real, but to be real in him, in his love. It's Augustine's quote written in a book. You have made us for yourselves. O Lord, and our heart is restless till we rest in you. So again, Luke 3, 21 and 22, baptism of Jesus, just beautiful. I mean, it shows us what our triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit commits to, to justify our lives, to give us true worth and fulfillment, to grant us rest, to make us real. So three questions. First, why does Jesus get baptized? Why does he do it? So Luke says, after, Jesus, after John baptized a whole lot of people, most of the people he would baptize, that Jesus too was baptized. And so it stresses that John's preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins had sparked a movement, this popular groundswell, People seeing they needed it. It also indicates that he baptized Jesus at the height or even the climax of his ministry. Notice, Luke doesn't even include John's name here. The point is to spotlight Jesus, like last week we said, he's the mightier one. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie a strap of his sandal. John's just the forerunner. So Luke, even in the way he reports the event, Eliminates John's name. He fades from view. His work is done. He's reached the peak, baptizing Jesus. So yet again, why does Jesus go for baptism? It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The water symbolized the washing away of the baptized person's sins, his filth, his dirtiness. And yet Jesus is the one human being who's without sin. He's spotless, he's blameless, there's no stain. None whatsoever, like he's never idolatrous. He's never self-centered, never sinfully angry, never lustful, he never had to ask for forgiveness and not because he's prideful. He just never sinned. He always said no to temptation and they came at him constantly. He said no every time. They never got through. He never lingered over temptation. He always loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor as himself. So why? If there's one person who didn't need to get this baptism, it was he. And yet, he purposefully goes for it. So there are at least four reasons, four reasons. First is, Jesus in getting baptized by John endorses John the Baptist's ministry. See, John is that bridge figure between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus calls him the greatest of the Old Testament Prophets, so by submitting to John's baptism, Jesus agrees with John's preaching. And by agreeing with what John preached, Jesus stamps his imprimatur on the whole Old Testament. Everything the whole Old Testament said about God, the nature of God, about sin, about the plan of salvation. Everything. We therefore cannot postulate a division between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. We can't say we like Jesus but don't like the Old Testament. Jesus is saying it all spoke about me and he endorses it all. In fact, you can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. That's one reason. The second reason is Jesus inaugurates his public ministry. He does it in the open, in public. It's time. He steps out in public and begins. So Acts 1, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, Peter leads the rest of the group of disciples to discern who's going to replace Judas as an apostle. And so these are the criteria. He says he has to be one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out Among us, beginning from the baptism of John until when he was taken up from us. Those are the bookends of Jesus' public ministry from John's baptism to his ascension. So at this point right here, Jesus is stepping into the open. He's assuming his role as Messiah officially. He accepts his saving mission He comes out for all to see. He wants them to see his life, witness his mighty works, and take heed to his preaching. He holds himself out to the people right here. Look at me and listen to me. It shows us that in Christ, the church steps out into the open too. We say, we're works in progress, saved by grace. Look at us, we're transparent We're seeking to honestly follow Christ. We want you to look at us and see the Redeemer we lean upon. Third, and I especially appreciate the Welch preacher, Jeffrey Thomas, here, third is Jesus identifies with sinners. In getting baptized, Jesus stands with us in our sin. So, can't you imagine John's ministry, what it's been like all these days? So people are flocking to John. And, and John's seen it all by now. They've all come to him, so many. So by the banks of the Jordan River, he's meeting with individuals and families. People are coming to him. And what are they saying to John? Now, what are they saying to John? Imagine the scene. They're saying, John, I'm an adulterer. John, I'm 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 an addict. Done, I've broken my family. I'm a murderer. I'm hateful. Like I'm bitter. I'm a bitter man. I'm selfish. I'm a child abuser. Like or I'm a slanderer. I'm so arrogant. I'm an idolater. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I lie all the time. I've been going through the motions all my life. John, it's bad. It's bad. You can imagine there's a ton of weeping going on. Like people just owning it. John's crying with them. They're cut to the heart. And then John is comforting them with the the best kind of comfort. Like you've given the gift of repentance. And you know what? The Redeemer is close. He's close. And all of a sudden in this scene, Jesus joins up with this line. Like he stands in this line. So you have the murderer, and you have the sex addict, you have the idolater, you have the deceiver, you have Jesus, you have the gossip, you have the thief. And there's no halo around him. There's no glowing clothes. There's nothing that would distinguish him from the rest. He's just one of them. You look at him, he's just one of those sinners. He's one of those. He looks no different. He joins himself to the line of sinners who need forgiveness. He stands with us in the sordid complexity of our dirtiness and pollution. He doesn't get baptized because he himself is a sinner, but because he commits to be in solidarity with sinners. He's with you. And that leads to the fourth. And that's even better because he identifies with us to represent us. He does it in representation. He stands with us in order to stand for us. When he submits to John's baptism, he officially accepts his redeeming role of being your substitute. What he does, he does in our place. He he obeys, he obeys all God's righteousness for us and then he offers himself to suffer God's eternal wrath at the cross in your place. So if you recall Isaiah 1 that we read, all those descriptions of what we're like like an ox knows like his barn or whatever and, and God's children just don't know him like he became the child who knew the father for us and so he takes on all of our God-hating selfishness all of our self-serving lust all of our hate and robbery he becomes it first Corinthians five twenty-one says he's made sin made it Like he takes the accumulated total of all the sins of all God's people since Adam. What a weight. He takes God's just judgment and bears it. He commits at this point to do it. Galatians 3.13 says, he becomes our curse He so takes it in that he becomes it. The blessed one is cursed such that John would announce, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet as John even said this, he couldn't comprehend what that would entail that Jesus was God himself who would absorb all the wrath on our behalf. You see that Jesus takes all this because he loves you. Second, why does the Spirit descend like a dove? Why does Jesus get baptized? Why does the Spirit descend like a dove? So in Luke's account, as fundamental as Jesus' baptism is, it's really not the emphasis here, if you notice the way it's written, and compare it to the parallel passages. Luke stresses, rather, what the Spirit does and what the Father says. He really wants us to take that home. And notice... The Spirit descends and the Father speaks as Jesus prays. And you see for Luke, prayer is a great emphasis. It's a distinctiveness of Luke. He's a prayer and he wants you to be prayers. This is the only account that mentions Jesus is praying. And really when we think of the significance of baptism and what's in Jesus's mind, doesn't it make good sense that he was praying, that he did want to communion with his father right here? I want you to see that as he prays, the heavens are opened, God's spirit descends, and the father speaks his good word. He does it in a unique way for Jesus as he enters his public ministry, but the point is also that for the child of God, That's what we expect when we pray. The heavens open, the Spirit descends, and God lets us know His good word. So, why would we forsake that incredible gift? So, the heavens are opened, and God's showing that there's just a thin veil separating earth and heaven. He shows Jesus and John, and potentially others, and through them, us that he steps into our fallen world, our everyday life. Like he's involved. He opens heaven to indicate that he's about to speak, not just through his angels, but his own voice. And so the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, so why? The Spirit formed Jesus in Mary's womb to make him unique. The Spirit kept Jesus sinless throughout his life to this point, so why descend on him now? Well, Jesus, again, is stepping into his public ministry. Acts 10 would say the Holy Spirit anoints him right here. Like an Old Testament king, prophet, or priest was anointed with oil, Jesus is anointed with the real thing, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit to qualify him, commission him, and equip him with all the gifts and all the strength and all the resources he'll need for the task. Now, he has it in himself, but the Spirit is right there investing him with everything he needs as well. And why does the Holy Spirit descend on him in bodily form as a dove? God sometimes manifests himself through things in Scripture. Why a dove here? What does the dove tell us about the Spirit? So most basically, Scripture uses the metaphor of a dove to speak of beauty, to speak of purity, to speak of gentleness, and to speak of grace. And look it up. And so it's saying uh, the Spirit equips Jesus for his role. um, The way the Spirit is in himself is the way Jesus will carry out his role. He will be gentle, beautiful, pure, and full of grace. But as good as this is, we can even say more. And I like Sinclair Ferguson has some nice thoughts here. He goes, first, the dove symbolizes sacrifice. And so just notice what we've seen already up to this point. Mary and Joseph, when he was 40 days old, took him to the temple and they had to offer a purification offering, symbolizing that we're all unclean in sin. And so they offer the poor offering, which is not a lamb, but it's two doves or two pigeons. So the Holy Spirit descends as a dove to say, I'm equipping you to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners. You're gonna make unclean people pure. But another thing we can say is that the dove symbolizes rest and new creation. So think of Noah and the flood. Children, remember the dove at the flood. So God judges the sinful world in the flood waters because the thoughts of man are only evil all the time. But in grace, he preserves Noah and his family. Noah becomes the first Messiah figure. In fact, his name means rest. His father said, you're gonna bring relief to this cursed world. So in grace, he preserves him. And in the ark, humanity and the animals, really God's saving plan, his gospel is kept safe. And then God sends a wind and a breath, which is the same word for spirit, to dry up the waters. And Noah sends out a bird to look for dry land. And the bird he sends out that comes back with an olive leaf is the dove. So the olive, the dove becomes a symbol of the end of God's judgment, of new beginnings, of new creation. And therefore Jesus coming out of the baptismal waters God's breath, his spirit descends upon him as a dove, equipping Jesus to be our true Messiah who will bring it into God's judgment, who will give us rest, who will make all things new. That's what he's equipping him to do. And the Holy Spirit does all that because the Holy Spirit loves you. Third, why does the Father speak that good word? Why does the Father step in and speak? The Trinity involved in the gospel. And so this is really the high point of this passage. And so up to this point, you have Gabriel has spoken. You have a multitude of angels that have spoken. You've got Holy Spirit-filled people who have spoken. But we haven't heard from the Father till right now. And the first words out of the Father's mouth directly are these beautiful words, we know it's the father because of what he says. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So why does the father speak here? And so first, the father wants to underscore Jesus' role, what he has to do. So this passage brings out a lot of Old Testament teaching. So for example, we can go back to Genesis 22. Remember, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. You can see the wording God uses as he speaks to Jesus. And you remember at the nick of time, Abram's about to drop the knife on his son and God says, stop and provides the ram in the thicket for the burnt offering. So in a piercing way, even back then, God is saying to really pay for sin, you need a substitute. That substitute has to be a son and he's hinting it's gonna have to be the son of God. And so the father is speaking over Jesus right here and said, you're the son is gonna be the substitute. That's your mission. Well, we can also go to Psalm 2, 7. And David records God speaking there and he's speaking to the king. And what God says to the king in that psalm is, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the text there, son, is a title, it's a title for king or Messiah. It's a role. And you see, in Israel, the king was the adopted son of God, represented God to the people. So at his baptisms, God's looking at Jesus and saying, you're the son, you are the son, the Messiah who truly represents me to the people. But furthermore, you have Isaiah 42:1, 1, 1, of the servant passages and what God says there is, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. He delights in his servant. You can see that reflected in the wording. The servant was the true Israel who truly obeyed God, represented the people to God, and then suffered for them. That's what the servant did. And so the father, his baptism, was looking over his son and said, You're the servant. You don't only represent me to them, you represent them to me. You're gonna do what they've never been able to do and you're gonna suffer on their behalf. But let me go a step further. There's another reason the Father speaks. And the other reason God speaks is right, right here is the Father underscores Jesus' identity. Not just his role, but who he is. Where he belongs. Behind his role is who he is. Genesis 22 hints at this, you're my beloved son. For in all eternity, Jesus has been the Father's dearly beloved son with whom he is well pleased. It's just the way it always has been. Eternity upon eternity of delighting in his son. It's only because of that that he could be the the redeemer, And so wonderful here, even before he succeeds in his mission, the father wants his son to know that he loves him and delights in him, even as he always had. He gives him his voice of love and approval. God the son in his human nature needed these words as he stepped out into his redeeming role. He needed the father to reaffirm that to him. So his father fills up his tanks, put wind in his sails, confirms his identity, his significance, his worth to him, his belonging to him. You are my beloved son. I delight in you. I'm pleased with you and I'm pleased with your decision to be the savior of sinners. Go into this fallen sinful world knowing my joy is over you. I'm overjoyed with you because there's gonna be a time when darkness comes over you and you're gonna cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're gonna to need to know that I delight in you, even when you bear the sins of my people. And so you today, do you realize the Father sent the Son, the Son agreed to be our redeemer, the Spirit equipped him for the task all because our triune God wants to give you sinner grasping for your identity, significance, and worth. The whole Trinity joins together to give you the very identity, significance, and worth of the very Son of God. The gospel makes it look like the Father loves you even more than the Son because he discards the Son at the cross to get you Amazing as that could be. The father says over you, you are my beloved son. I'm delighted in you. The father says to you, daughter, you are my beloved daughter. I'm delighted in you. I'm well pleased with you. I sent my son to the cross to make that a reality. And to this day, I remember all the way back in 11th grade, it made a huge impression upon me at a basketball practice. And it was the start of the season, we're all solidifying our roles. I was just a backup point guard. The starter, a guy named David, was a great guy, but he was struggling, he was off kilter, he wasn't playing well, and he was getting really angry at himself. And he felt a ton of pressure to lead well. And what made it even worse was the prior year's point guard was just incredible, he ended up playing at Vandy. So David was comparing himself to him and getting more and more down on himself one one play he really forced it and messed up royally and just lost it at practice and so right then the coach stopped everything and there was a pause but he didn't get mad at him he looked at him in front of all of us clearly confidently compassionately he looked at him in a loud voice he said david you're our guy. You're the point guard. We don't win without you. You can do this. And that so impressed me by our coach that he did that. And I was like, that's exactly what he needed from you. And it made all the difference. He settled down, played great. We won the state. So much more importantly... So much more important, fundamental to who you are. You were designed for this good word. You're always looking for it. There's no other word that will fill your tank, no other word that will put wind in your sails. Won't you let the Father convince you today that in Christ, he's justified your existence. He's happy with you. He's made you real. He's given you rest. He said over you in Christ, You are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Might that make a huge impression upon you even today? And then it doesn't make us apathetic, it makes us active. It doesn't make us passive, it makes us passionate just like Jesus at the start of his earthly ministry, then step out in the world with this kind of joy and freedom to share with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the amazing work of grace to help anxious and fearful people grasping for identity and their sin learn where to find their true value, significance, and worth and the only place they can really be found. Just imagine that evangelism statement. Can I tell you, how to enter a relationship such that the God of the heavens and the earth looks at you and says, you are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. What a glorious mission God set us upon and may it be true of us. Amen. Let's stand.